Howdy, and welcome back to the Sleuthing Soundbox. I hope you're enjoying listening to The Errant Heirs Caper. In today's episode, Jenny investigates the crime scene, but gunshots interrupt. Enjoy. Chapter 3 Hmm. I stood back as Rufus and Dad examined the scene of Jared Presley's death. The shoreline was mostly sand, and I had to keep my weight on the balls of my feet so that my heels wouldn't sink into it. The morning had dawned beautiful, with bright sun and nary a cloud in the sky. A nice breeze kicked up to the east, threatening to take my hat, so I brought my hand up to hold it on my head while I listened to the men's conversation. See that? Rufus pointed, and Dad mumbled as he nodded in the direction the other man indicated. There were several grooves in the sand alongside the spot where Presley's boat was still beached. You're right. There was another boat there. J.D. agreed. But how would you know if it was here when old Presley was? Rain. There was a heavy rain until yesterday afternoon. I myself saw Presley go out in his boat not long after it let up, and Ms. Maybelline found him only a little better than an hour after that. So while it's possible someone else was here just before Presley, it seems more likely they were here together. Or after? I queried softly. Nope. Dad glanced over his shoulder. See those prints? That's your boot print, Rufus. You and I haven't walked that way today, and I bet those others are from Tillman and Peters. If the boat had come after you all retrieved his body, it would have smudged those out. And if someone came between the time he died and when you all came to get him, well, why wouldn't they have reported it? Oh, I bit my lip. You're right. There's something else, Dad said, then glanced over his shoulder at me, waiting for me to guess. I took my time examining the scene, considering all that Rufus had told me and what I'd read in his preliminary report. Carefully still moving on my tiptoes, I made my way closer to them. No rocks. No stumps. Nothing but sand. Rufus told us that he'd looked over Presley's body at the morgue. He'd discovered a knot on the back of the man's head, and the coroner had suggested he'd hit it on a rock or a log when he had the heart attack. It seemed plausible, Rufus had told us, but I'm still pretty sure it couldn't have been a heart attack. There's some fishy stuff no pun intended about this whole thing. I mean, when you see where we found him, you'll know what I mean. Something's just off about it. Now Rufus chuckled, slapped my father on the back while moving his head up and down in sharp jerks. That girl of yours is a crackerjack. I swear it took me close to an hour to realize there wasn't a single rock in the vicinity of this boat. J.D. winked at me, then went back to work. He squatted down and bent his head. I found myself bending at the waist so I could mimic his view. He could have hit his head on the boat. Tell me again where you found him. The policeman took a few steps, chopping his hands into an X to show how the body had been splayed. Right here, with his head there. Face up or down? Up. And there was something else. No footprints, not a single print around the body. 
I mean, sure, he could have hit his head on the boat, then stumbled this way, but no prints? How would he get from there to here? Brushed them away, Dad opined softly, picking up a sprinkle of sand before letting it slowly drop onto the breeze. All the prints from yesterday are still visible. See? Those are Presley's prints there near the boat, so he had to have made prints if he'd walked this way. Or someone else should have made some. I piped in again. Or both. Yep, you got that right, Jenny. Or both. Dad stood up and stretched his back. I heard the bones pop a little, and he groaned, then removed his hat to scratch his head. Well, we'd better get back. By my calculations, the family ought to be arriving any minute. Rufus tugged at the chain until his watch popped from his vest pocket. Any minute is right. J.D. offered his hand to me so that I could step into the boat. I'd considered wearing trousers, but was glad I'd decided against it. At least with a dress, I could hold the ham up so that it wouldn't get into the water. Once we were all aboard, Rufus started the engine and made a wide turn back towards his dock at the Reelum Inn. We were just pulling up to the dock when I heard a popping and then a whizzing sound. I frowned, looking around in confusion. What was that? Head down, Jenny, J.D. told me with an even but stern voice. I did as he ordered, tucking myself low into the boat. I lurched forward, holding the sides of the boat to keep from toppling over as Rufus kicked the engine to go as fast as possible. Dad was in front of me, just beside Rufus, and he reached into his coat pocket, hand emerging with his pistol in hand. That's when I realized it. Someone was shooting at us. I noticed, to my dismay, that water was beginning to collect in the boat. We're leaking! I called out above the noise of the boat motor. Almost there, Rufus assured us. Then he throttled the motor back and guided the boat up onto the shore beside his dock, tactically putting the platform between us and the shooter. It wasn't a graceful stop, but it did the trick. I didn't worry about getting my shoes muddy or my dress wet this time. I hopped out of the boat along with my father and the police chief, and the three of us hurried, bent at the waist, into the woods. Hunting rifle, J.D. muttered thoughtfully, the only emotion in his voice a vague sense of curiosity. Yep, Rufus pointed. Coming from about there, where that little peninsula on the opposite side of the lake juts in closest. Hope they didn't hit the inn. I considered the angle from which the shots had come and could see the reason for his concern. The shoreline on this side of the lake was such that any bullets that missed us could very well have struck in the direction of the real men. We waited a few minutes. The only sound I could hear was my own heart pounding and a mockingbird calling from somewhere behind me. Finally, Dad stood, stretched his back as he always did, then shot me a wide grin. Well, that was exciting. Let's head up and see if the relatives are here yet. I could sure use a drink. Chapter 4 To our surprise, Presley's relatives had arrived at Lake Keegan, 
even before we left on our boat ride out to Goat Island. Rufus's wife, Margot, rushed us all into his back office as soon as we walked into the building. Despite the fact that we were all wet from about the calves down and were tracking water and mud onto the floor, she shoved us all inside and then leaned against the door as if holding back a grizzly bear. My goodness, that man is horrendous, she hissed. Then her eyes widened when there was a light knock. A bright red color spread across her cheeks, and she swung the door open just a crack to peek outside. I saw her shoulders drop in relief as she yanked Blake in by the forearm. Which man would that be, honey bun? Her husband asked as he found a towel in his private washroom and handed it to me so that I could try to clean up the hem of my skirt. Mr. Leonidas Montague, of course. Oh, the nephew, eh? J.D. said with a chuckle. Blake nodded and took a seat. It turned out Presley didn't have any close family, only a nephew and two nieces. He arrived just after Peggy Montague, and he's hopping mad. She here too? Rufus's eyebrows raised as he found a cigar in his desk drawer and drew it to his lips to chew on the end. She's here all right. Haven't seen or heard from the youngest Beatrix Dunleavy, but her husband's come to see about her interest until she gets here. And when will that be? I inquired. Due to arrive later tonight, or so I'm told. But seems Montague contacted the morgue when you all weren't here. He was pretty upset when he discovered there was some question about the manner of Presley's death. I refused to respond to his interrogation. Just deferred it all to you, of course. He tipped his head in Rufus's direction. Well, I do appreciate that. The other man responded, dripping sarcasm. He's so pompous, you wouldn't believe. Fussed about the size of the rooms here and said he was sure he'd have to have his dear uncle's remains transported to Austin for a funeral befitting his station. As if we can't give old Presley a proper burial. Hmm, was all my father said to that. Blake crossed his leg over his knee and tapped his palm on the arm of his chair. He also called that lawyer out in New Braunfels about the reading of the will. Clarence Todd should be here later this evening. Bunch of money grubbers, Margot shook her head. All of them? Rufus asked his wife. Well, Mr. Dunleavy is nice enough. In fact, Linton is quite the gentleman. Her husband snorted when she blushed a little, and I ducked my head to hide my smile. About that time, there was another knock at the door. This one was anything but polite. That's not all. Blake drew our attention again. Montague stopped me in the hallway and... Mr. Scribner, Mrs. Scribner, are you in there? I stood and cut Margot off before she could reach the door. Looking to my father, I waited for his nod, then I put my hand on the knob and snatched it open so quickly that Leonidas Montague nearly toppled over as he banged his fist into nothing. He caught himself, grabbed the hem of his vest, and tugged it straight as he huffed into the room. Mr. Scribner, he approached Rufus's desk, I would like to have a word with you. You can call me Chief Scribner. It was all I could to keep from laughing. 
Rufus never used his law enforcement title. Clearly, he was making a point to the pretentious man. I crossed the room to his left and took the only vacant chair in the room, leaving Mr. Montague with no choice but to stand. My father had taught me how to make points, too. Mr. Montague reached up to brush a non-existent strand of hair back into place, fingers barely touching his excessively oiled coiffure before his eyes scanned the other occupants of the room in disdain. If you all would excuse me, I would like to speak with Chief Scribner. Mrs. Scribner hurried past him, her eyes burning with dislike as she sniffed and exited the room as quickly as she could, apparently happy to comply with his request. His gaze rested on me next, and I fought off a grin as I crossed my legs at the ankle and settled into my chair. So what can I do for you? Rufus asked, adjusting his ample backside into his squeaky desk chair. Mr. Montague bristled but decided to ignore the rest of us for the moment. He gave Rufus his attention. I demand to know why you allow hunting so close to this establishment, a stray bullet could have killed me. Rufus's eyebrows knitted close together in a serious frown. There's no hunting in this area at all, Mr. Montague. Well, then, how can you explain the bullet hole that went through the window in my room? That had all of us at attention. I sat forward, my heel knocking the wooden floor as I planted my foot back down, preparing to stand. J.D. cut his eyes to Blake, who nodded with a pointed but otherwise detached expression. I took a look, he agreed. You all were gone, but I heard the shot and came out of my room, intended to check things out. Mr. Montague nearly ran me over. The other man stiffened at that representation, issuing a loud harumph. And I found the bullet lodged in the ceiling of his room. Looks like a twenty-two. Hmm, was all my father said as he leaned forward to take the spent round from Blake. This entire affair is like a dog and pony show, Montague hissed to Rufus, somehow managing to lift his nose even higher in condescension. Anyone out to get you, Mr. Montague? What are you suggesting? That the shot was actually intended for me? Who on earth would do that? Good question, J.D. said with a little smirk. I have no enemies, sir, he replied, and I wanted to chuckle at the irony. I couldn't imagine the man having any friends, much less no enemies. He returned his attention to Rufus, and I somehow thought he didn't really believe the rest of us warranted his consideration. I would also like to know the status of my uncle's remains. Why has an autopsy been ordered? Standard procedure. Do you mean to tell me that it's standard to perform an autopsy when someone dies from a heart attack? How do you know it was a heart attack? J.D. asked, smacking his lips on a toothpick dangling from his mouth. Just who are you, sir? This here's Mr. J.D. Pearson. He's an insurance investigator hired by the company that held the policy on your uncle, Rufus explained. I see. Montague chewed on that a few seconds, then his chest swelled as he took a deep breath. Well, 
I was told, when I received the news of my uncle's unfortunate passing, that it appeared he'd had a heart attack. Rufus inclined his head to my dad ever so slightly, and I knew he was confirming the truth of Mr. Montague's words. The police chief began to say something, but was interrupted by Margot's sharp knock. There's a call for you, she said to her husband, then left the room as quickly as possible, leaving the door open. I took the opportunity to consider Leonidas Montague, trying to determine whether he was just an exceedingly unpleasant person or whether he could be a killer. I also had to wonder if someone had really been taking shots at us, as I'd formerly assumed, or perhaps at him as it appeared now. About that time, a beautiful woman with striking black hair and piercing blue eyes entered, followed closely by a tall Greek god of a man in a pinstripe suit. Have you any word of the attorney yet, Leo? The woman asked, tugging on the fingers of her white gloves to remove them and then tuck them into her handbag. She was exceedingly overdressed for the occasion in a tulle tea gown though at least the dress was black. I told you, Peggy, he will be here this afternoon. She exhaled as if bored, then glanced at me down her nose before cutting her eyes behind her at the men. For goodness sakes, Linton, would you please stop following on my heels like a dog in heat? The man crooked his lip up and laughed dryly. You know, Peggy. Not every man is dumbstruck by your looks, especially those of us who can see you for what you really are. The dark woman ignored his jab and crossed the room in the direction of the chairs along the wall. To my abject disgust, Blake tipped his head to her before vacating his seat so that she could take it. When he glanced at me, I wrinkled my nose and turned away. So, Mr. Montague, J.D. said casually, what is it you do for a living? I'm a pharmacist. Peggy Montague chortled as she examined herself in a little compact mirror she'd pulled from her purse. You mean you were a pharmacist? She leaned in my father's direction. These days he does no more than instruct at a little technical college. You know what they say. Those who can't teach... Montague sniffed but seemed to have no retort. He cut his eyes away and refused to look at his sister. And you, missus? Dad looked at the beautiful woman, expectantly, waiting for her to correct his suggestion that she was married. Miss Montague. She put out her hand to him, placing it in just the right position for him to kiss rather than shake, should he have chosen to. He did neither just grinning at her. Do you have a profession, Miss Montague? It was Leonidas's turn to laugh. She's a professional decoration, can't you tell? See the way she moves and plays the room. Some men will pay for that sort of show. Linton hissed a laugh, too, then pulled the watch from his coat and glanced at the time. Waiting for something, Mr. Dunleavy? Everything's about timing for him, Peggy noted without looking at him. In his line of business, everything is about timing. What line of business would that be? I asked, picking up on my father's line of questioning. 
Linton Dunleavy looked uncomfortable for a split second. Then he placed his hands in his pockets. I'm an exhibition shooter. A professional marksman, you might say. Thank you for listening to the Sleuthing Soundbox. To find out about me, my books, and more, go to my website, chsesums.com. That's chsesums.com.